part two of a three-part series of articles on the matrix of clinician distress. And this is part two, C, in which we're going to explore approaches to remedy of burnout, compassion fatigue, and moral injury. Approaches to remedy, systematically dismantling burnout, compassion fatigue, and moral injury. Now, in brief, as I see it, here are the core tasks for the coach or therapist and for the client. Number one, understand the array of phenomena and initially entertain a working tentative hypothesis of what the syndrome is and what its core manifesting symptoms are and be able to have a hypothesis at the outset that there may be other syndromes going along with this concurrently. Now, once you have arrived at a working hypothesis of what one or more syndromes are, the important thing now is to tease them apart and help the client do so. And I love this analogy of teasing apart because it's what happens when you have a ball of yarn that is multiply knotted. And in fact, some of the knots are not just simply figure of eight knots, but they're complicated knots that things have really gotten jammed up. But as anyone who's tried to untangle knots knows, the last thing you can do is to, or should do, is to pull on both ends of the twine. That is only going to tighten the knots. Rather, the task is to follow each knot and to try to disentangle it from the remainder of the mass. So the task here is to understand and then to try to tease these various syndromes apart. In fact, as we noted earlier, simply being able to name what one is feeling and to know that there are well-supported approaches to their resolution can in and of itself be tremendously therapeutic. The suffering individual all but says, finally, somebody who understands this multi-knotted complexity, this knotted ball of yarn that's all knotted up, finally, someone understands it and has a way out. And in doing so, you are then in a position as a therapist or a coach to more accurately home in and collaboratively develop effective approaches to resolving them. Because, let's be frank, pardon the vulgarity here, but feeling crappy itself is a form of pain. It's like the depression of depression that I mentioned earlier. Not only do I have major depression with all of its symptoms, I'm depressed by the fact that I'm depressed and so depressed that I can't snap out of it. You see the compound nature of that. Next, help that person talk about their intensely mixed emotional state and their psychological stuckness. Talking it out helps one make sense of it. It is tremendously relieving. Implant early on the fact that burnout and the other syndromes of distress are remediable. They are fixable. Emphasize that there is a future for you that is free of this glum state and that you can indeed get there. But it's going to take patience 
and it's going to take collaborative effort. Remember that the more intense and the more prolonged the distress syndrome, the more likelihood there is of having a sense of hopelessness and despair. By the time many clinicians reach out for help, they're already grasping for hope and they're already feeling very despairing and weary. And I would dare say that this notion of hopelessness and despair is perhaps more important than any other factor in driving suicide. The combination of pain and insolubility wear you down. They'll wear anybody down. They'll cloud your thinking and they'll lead one to extreme measures. Next, help the person articulate and identify the full array of stressors, the events, the situations, the issues that you're dealing with that are contributing. Now, be assured that when you try to help someone speak about these, there is a truckload of them. Don't be daunted by that. In fact, the more we can put out in front of us, the more we can see that, aha, these are the array of things that I've been really grappling with, and in some cases, I've not really even articulated them before. And so they need to be articulated. They need to be explored, elaborated upon. Help the person begin to envision both a future state free of burnout, free of distress, and also one in which one is living in an ideal state of job, career, and overall well-being. What would that look like and feel like? What ingredients should it have? What needs to be in place? And as importantly, what should not be in the mix? Help them craft their vision and then help them explore the pathways toward achieving that vision. Using the practical coaching mindset, help them focus on specific steps to address these. Not just talking to vent, although that is tremendously helpful, but specific steps they can take to help alleviate particular stressors and help them also develop some sense of accountability for taking those steps. Now, as soon as I say that, I want to note a caution here. Caution number one, as I said, there's going to be an abundance of factors and an abundance of stressors that are going on. You can't fix everything at once. Your ongoing task is going to be to help them identify what's the one thing they can work on right now to help alleviate their situation. Now, there's an additional caution here, and that is that when I mention the word accountability, this is not an invitation for a stern taskmaster approach, even though that may be advocated in some therapeutic or coaching settings. Rather, I believe that will be most counterproductive. It will psychologically harm the client. See, in essence, if they've not done the steps they said they would work on, your role is not to scold them and shame them into compliance. When someone is already brimming over with pain and fear, sadness, anger, and shame, anything, anything 
that hints at adding to that is liable to cause overload and shutdown. Simple mandates like, oh, you ought to be more compassionate or you need to get over that hurt. It's just the way the system is. Are, I believe, indicative of the coach or therapist ignorance and insensitivity. And they're taking a simplistic approach to the complex distress that this clinician is experiencing. I'd even go so far as to say that a client who's subjected to that kind of treatment, that kind of trite admonition, really ought to consider ending the session and walking out because that counselor or that therapist is really in urgent need of supervision. Now, what can we, who are not coaches or therapists, but rather patients, or perhaps even bosses, what can we do to help? Number one, let's cut our treaters, our healthcare providers, some slack. Number two, we need to stop being entitled and demanding and acting like a disgruntled customer or a scolding boss. Recognize that your direct care provider, physician, mid-level, nurse, your treater is a human being. And a human being who is not there just to serve you alone. They have an abundant array of patients they need to take care of, and they also have a life outside of medicine, which may also be stressed to the max as well. Feel and show appreciation. Express it. Let your treaters know that you're aware of how much stress they're under. And you're amazed at the work that they do and how they've held up through this duress. And this implies, this applies to offering appreciation to the very institution itself. Now, I know that might sound unusual to clinicians, but there are many dedicated administrators who are working behind the scenes to keep their teams healthy and fully operational. And they're staffing their areas in such a way as to ensure abidance by safety and non-contamination protocols. They could most definitely use your appreciation, too. There are very few of us who are not touched by another's expression of appreciation, so be liberal with it. It might feel awkward at first, but practice at it. Spread the word about how important this is to our healthcare workforce. Help others, help your family and friends and others understand that the clinician's plate right now, they're on overload. The clinician's plate is simply overwhelming with stress. And so that if we can understand where they're coming from, we can help them remain invested in the awesome challenge of providing the compassionate care they are trained and want to do and to continue to provide that care to all in need in these extremely challenging times. And lastly, consider some random acts of kindness, a flower arrangement, a gift basket, an appreciation card, whether to the treater, him or herself, or 
to the team or even to the front or back office all go a long way in bringing a sense of acknowledgement and worthwhileness to the treater's efforts. And by the way, your act of kindness makes you feel good too. Here's hoping that by understanding these more fully, we can better utilize our diverse skills to resolve what I see as a parallel epidemic of clinician distress, a distress complex consisting of burnout, compassion fatigue, and moral injury. And it's not only vital that we do this for those who are mired in that distress, it's also in our own best interest because we too need a healthy, rested, engaged workforce who are fully invested in the challenging work of healthcare. As, remember, all of us are the recipients of their extraordinarily skilled, compassionate care. That wraps it up for part two, part 2A, part 2B, and this one, part 2C, of better understanding the matrix of clinician distress. In the next episode, part three, We'll examine the other syndromes often co-occurring in the matrix of clinician distress, including grief and bereavement, trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder, litigation stress, and the actual clinical mood syndromes of depression and anxiety. I look forward to having you join us then. Thanks so much. <laughs>